You are listening to Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and on the web at gtownradio.com. If it's Thursday at 8, this is Cue the Mic. Or if it's Saturday at 2, you're listening to us on WXVU 89.1 FM, Villanova's College Station. Welcome. Cue the mic, cue the mic. This is Dr. Renee Norris-Jones. And it's, it's the doctor, just because I don't take myself too seriously. And my grandchildren call me Dr. Grandmother. Everything having to do with me. I, it's all me. My pronouns are she and her. And I'm here with my co-host tonight, Sandy Smith. Hi, folks. Uh, this is Sandy Smith, um, <clears throat> Germantown resident since 2013 uh, and Philadelphia resident for nearly 40 years. I am, my day job is home and real estate editor at Philadelphia Magazine. And in order to discourage uh, emails that I get from people that begin, Dear Ms. Smith, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his. We're just two people today, and uh, we do, though, have a special guest, uh, uh, Dr. Lori Green of Stockton University in New Jersey. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Renee and Sandy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I told Sandy, I saw a previous interview, and I said, Sandy, we're going to have a ball today. It's going to be a party. Um, <laughs> Because so, it's early in the morning, I have some water, but um, Sandy, what do we have on the show tonight? Well, I'm on my third cup of coffee, so, you know, <laughs> um, what's we, uh, we have uh, start off with our Why Pronouns Matter segment. That may be truncated because I think we may all have to explain why pronouns matter. Let me explain a little bit about Dr. Green. She is the author of a book called uh, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens, uh, which is a historical look at uh, culture, uh, excuse me, gay and lesbian and mainstream culture in the intersection of the two in Atlantic City. Contesting Femininity in the World's Playground is the subtitle. Um, after, after we do a brief uh, hash on the pronouns, we'll be doing our arts and culture report. Um, <clears throat> followed by our trans spotlight, which um, we think will dovetail with some of the material in the book. <laughs> um, after that, political cues and news. Um, again, present and past in Atlantic City. See, this book's got everything. <laughs> it does. It's does. like a history book. <laughs> and then we're followed by gay answers to straight questions. And uh, I think we may have a few to draw from elsewhere. Um, and then finally, our lightning round, newsworthy or not. And then we're done. And then this week in queer history. Oh, yes. Forgot about that. This week in queer, well, yeah, this week in queer history, June 12th, was the fifth anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Um, one of the worst mass shootings in American history. And tragically enough, that very same evening, there was a mass shooting in Austin's entertainment district. Um, we did, there wasn't a remembrance ceremony. Uh, unfortunately, I missed it. <laughs> yeah, it was actually on the 12th. I saw it, I saw it, and then I realized that I missed it. But I believe some things are on Facebook where you can Google it and, and kind of watch you know, what was going on you know, and watch the, the ceremony. So, and it's pride. We got all the way this far in and it's pride month. That's right. Um, here locally, our parade isn't taking place, but uh, there's a calendar of like 200 plus events taking place uh, all over the city actually um, to commemorate pride. And you can read about them on uh, phillygaypride.com, not .org. So I, I heard something on the news this morning and this week, week has been a blur. I think I heard this morning, I didn't know that it wasn't gonna be a pride parade, but it's being postponed to another month. Uh, if it's been postponed, that's good news. I hadn't heard that they'd picked another date for it. It would okay. seem to me that it should be coincide with the annual Outfest celebration in October. 
Um, but if they're if they're working on another date, great. And uh, let's keep folks informed when we know what it is. Yeah, I'm looking. Yeah, it looks like it's been moved to September the fourth. Okay. Yeah, I knew I heard something this morning. So, so uh, right. So, so all I put in the browser was Philly Pride, and it gave me Doylestown Pride Festival, Bucks County. So there's there's a whole list of things in the area, in the burbs of what's going on. And while we're on that, Lori, is there a pride parade in Atlantic City? Yeah, it's funny you should ask that because this is the first year that we're actually having pride celebration that is sponsored by the city and supported by the city in Atlantic City. Wow. And yeah, and in conjunction with that, not that we haven't had unofficial events always in Atlantic City, but in addition to that, um, we've also just had a liaison to the LGBTQ plus community appointed um, to our to uh, the city hall by our mayor um, in, wow. the in the Department of Health and Human Services. So we're looking forward to having a little more of a voice um, in Atlantic City. We're actually planning because we're a resort town and so busy in the summer. We are having a few little things. We had a GS. E, um, equality walk yesterday. And, and what's the GS, GSE? That's Garden State Equality. Okay. Um, so it's a, a New Jersey, um, you know, a, a pan New Jersey sort of a pride organization or, or um, LGBTQ plus rights organization. Wow. And we're having little things, but we're planning a big celebration for the month of September. Um, once the, you know, we're done with our summer season and everyone has a little bit more time to breathe. And that is followed closely by the next contestation of Miss America in October. So, and, and on that topic, and Sandy and I were talking about this, is there, is there still a Miss America pageant in Atlantic City? There is. Um, not Miss America. Miss America, I really don't know what's going on. Last year would have been its 100th anniversary. So it was a very big occasion for the Miss America pageant. Right. But they had decided to leave and go to one of the casinos in Connecticut to leave Atlantic City again, um, which is, you know, such an interesting thing. When I was writing this book, that's how so many things sort of spiraled out of what I was studying. Right. But they didn't have the pageant last year um, because of COVID. So I really don't know if they're going to have it again. I, I'm not sure. But Miss America our drag pageant that's also born here in Atlantic City um, is happening again. We also had a year off because of COVID, um, but we are having it October 23rd. And this year, um, sort of a surprise, we're actually going to be having a whole weekend of events, not just um, the pageant on Saturday night. So more to come on that that I can't really speak about right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Sandy was reading something and Sandy, you mentioned who the host or someone that was involved with it. Oh, oh Carson Cressley. Uh, yes. Yes. Carson is the host. Your eye for the straight guy will be hosting this year's Missed oh, America. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. So I'm going to go back for a second. Um, didn't... Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to say it straight out. Didn't ex-president Trump buy Miss America pageant or something? He it took me a minute to get those words out. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't he didn't have anything to do with Miss America. He right, actually right. had a, the Miss USA. Right. Pageant, which is the feeder into Miss World, which is builds okay. itself strictly as a beauty pageant. They, they are all not beauty pageants. Well, the Miss America pageant has always, well, since the 1960s, tried to build itself as a scholarship competition. And that's to try right. To, yeah, to try to disown itself for many reasons that I talk about in the book um, <laughs> from being a beauty pageant, um, ironically, uh, which I, of course, which of course highlights the big question, why parade around in heels for a scholarship? Uh, right. But that's all right. story. But but they all had good intentions because they all wanted world peace. Well, actually, yeah. yeah looking at some of the <laughs> looking at some of the news coverage of the last time there was a you know the, the one of one of the ancillary events surrounding the Miss America pageant is a parade called Show Us Your Shoes, and um, uh, NewJersey.com's coverage of the last Show Us Your Shoes parade 
mentioned a big controversy, which was that the Miss America organization had eliminated the swimsuit competition. And that, you know, a lot of contestants apparently were upset about that too. Wow. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it, in fact, um, it's probably the most controversial thing that people talk about in the pageant world and in Atlantic City about the pageant was the elimination of swimsuit. So yeah, very much. But that was all a reaction to or an attempt to try to mitigate the sort of feminist critique of the pageant being objectifying. Mm -hmm. And so they tried to take out the things that they complained about, but then they were really left with nothing. <laughs> so. <laughs> That was pretty much their problem. Um, you know, you take the pageantry and the glitz out of the pageant and no one wants to watch a scholarship competition. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So how does that compare to the Ms. The Ms. 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 America pageant. American pageant? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, a little bit of history about the name, why it's called Miss America. And there are a few stories about this, but the story most people tell is that um, this was during the AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, which hit Atlantic City in terms of its impact on the gay population, the queer population in Atlantic City, almost 10 years later than in Philadelphia. So it was wow. a little bit delayed. It was here, but it wasn't devastating until the early 90s, as opposed to the you know, mid to early 80s when it started in Philly, um, where I was living actually at the time. Um, and what, what they did was they decided, you know, we've got to do something to try to help our friends and our family and our acquaintances who are dying without any assistance. And so the South Jersey AIDS Alliance was started. It was actually called South Jersey Against AIDS, the SJAA. And it was the second or arguably the first, but I believe the second um, oldest AIDS organization in the country. And the pageant was started to try to kick off and fund the organization and raise money to do that. And, you know, in Atlantic City, the gay community did what they knew. They knew because we all worked in it all the time and that's pageantry and drag, you know? And so they combined the two to create the Miss America pageant. And the story was they would do a skit at the beginning of each of the pageants. And they were all different and all very funny and raunchy. But the idea was <laughs> that the drag queens were supposed to compete in Miss America, but for some <laughs> reason they missed it. Ah. And so the, and it, and the stories about why they missed it are hysterical, you know, but, it, and each year it was a different one. Like one year they went down on the Titanic, you know, and when the Titanic <laughs> was popular, for example, um, and they had to swim home. And that's, you know, that's how the show starts with them coming out all wet, you know, in their costumes. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the idea was that they had missed the pageant. And so it was, the, it was traditionally contested the night after Miss America was contested. And the idea is that all the people that worked in the show would come down to New York Avenue um, where the, it was held in Studio Six um, upstairs on the deck and they would be able to enjoy the pageant. And, you know, th they considered it not really a critique but an homage to Miss America, which is so beloved. And even though it may be thought of anachronistic in the rest of the world or even despised, it is absolutely loved in Atlantic City. And so that's how the pageant got its name and, and how it originated. That was in 1992, by the way. By, okay. Wow. 1992. Wow. So wow. Wait a that will be, that will make this the 20th edition. Well, they skipped 2020, right? They skipped 2020, yes. It's actually the 25th, I think, um, was last oh. time it was, yeah, it was contested. Mm -hmm. And the first oh. year there wasn't a winner. And then they started crowning people with a Burger King crown. <laughs> um, and and a bouquet of dead flowers wrapped in newspaper and that eventually evolved into a much more traditional pageant with much more professional production that's now held at the hard rock in their huge stadium and is televised that we yes. have today yeah wow and now is, is that televised just in atlantic city 
I can't, I don't know that. It's just this year being, it was live streamed last year. I've heard this year it's going to be televised. So I assume not that you'll and, be able to watch it in other places. Right. And what's the date? October 20, 23rd. Yeah, it's a Saturday. And again, there will be a significant surprise, meaning it's coming out soon, the announcement events on that Friday as well as that Sunday. So there's going to be a whole week, a weekend that's dedicated to our queer history and our queer culture in Atlantic City. So when can people start buying tickets for this? Meaning, I, when, yeah, when can I, I start getting tickets? I believe that it, it's on the Mr. America website, Mr. America pageant website. Um, and I believe the tickets begin going on sale in July, but I'm not 100% positive about that. So, because I'm not technically part of the organization, but I, right, do, right, right. I, do, I do get the ear on it, though, I'll tell you. Wow. Wow, that just sounds wonderful. I do have a question to go back to. You mm -hmm. said AIDS did not hit Atlantic City, which we call AC, um, until 10 years after Philadelphia. Uh, it's major impact, yeah. Yeah, so, and we're like, what are we, two hours away, an hour away? One hour. Uh, about an hour away. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, Atlantic City, when I left Atlantic, when I left Philadelphia in the late 70s, it was still, there was no casinos at all. So when I came back in 83, my sister's like, you know, let's go down to Atlantic City. Well, I had just driven from Texas. So I didn't want to drive anywhere. Um, but it was just when I finally got down there, I was just like, when did all this happen? I was only going four years. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, I mean, I, I think when it, when I first came back, I went down a couple of times, but I'm not a gambler. A few times I went down, I take my $120. When that's gone, I'm done. And I think I maybe done, did that in all the years that it's been open two, maybe three times. Mm. Um, and, and so yeah. how is the current Atlantic City with the casinos? I mean, there was an up and then it was a down and up and down and I don't like follow it. You know, I, I always tell people when I say I live in Atlantic City, the first thing they often do is go, they make that face and then <laughs> they go, oh, how is it like that? Um, and I always say it's great. You know, I love living here. And one of the things I most love about this city, Atlantic City, is the resiliency of this place. I mean, you have to live in a place like this, which is so used to the ups and downs mm -hmm. and, you know, the pyramid schemes and the failures and the people running off with all the money. And I mean, it's just how we live here. You know, we, right. just, we just expect it. But people are so resilient and so you know they just keep going you know they keep they keep at it and you know that's how we live here and we're just you know it's it's uh, almost part of the excitement of living in the city not that we wish you know ill ill economic health but um i believe the city is actually on an upward swing right now um i can see it in the way we're rejuvenating um that old new york avenue area the old neighborhood and how there are calls for the gay bars to be brought back to the city, um, oh, wow. which, which once had really? the most thriving, I call it gay metropolis on the East Coast. Yeah, but, and, but, but, um, but well, but, I'd like to know a little bit more about that because, you know, I think when I arrived here in 1983, it was already sort of on the wane, you know, and it, it seems like there's a richer past that. I don't even know about, and I would love to know about it. You know, what was it like back, you know? Uh, yeah, well, it was an amazing place. Um, so there's a few things people don't know about Atlantic City and our gay culture here, which is has such a long and strong history. Um, first thing is that, as I mentioned, uh, Louise's, that is one of the oldest gay bars in the country, um, a long-standing open gay bar. It didn't close until New York Avenue went under. Um, and again, for a number of different reasons. One of them is the pressure for development by the casinos. They wanted the mm -hmm. land, the land where New York Avenue was. Um, another thing that people don't know is that there was a bar called Lyles um, in Atlantic City. And it was the first bar the year before Stonewall that contested being harassed and closed down by the police, took it to court and won and laid the law, laid the groundwork for the laws that prevented in the future for gay bars to be raided. And that was a year before Stonewall. Wow. So wow. We have, yeah, we have 
and, and there's other things, but I want to say that from the 1950s, really, on through the 1970s, there was a slow rise and a real fluorescence, a real like halcyon period of gay life um, in Atlantic City in that area of New York Avenue. It's a four block area, which they now call the Orange Loop during this gentrification of this area because it's the orange properties on the Monopoly board. So you have- ah, okay. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, you have New York Avenue, you have yep. Ken Kentucky Avenue, Avenue, and you have Tennessee Avenue. And so those blocks connected by Snake Alley, which is the street that Sandy, you were talking about, Snake Alley. Mm -hmm. we, we call it here Snake Alley, which is Westminster. Mm -hmm. um, that sort of snaked across all those yep. streets and that's where there were 15, 20 gay boarding houses where people would live or, or came and stay as, as tourists. There were gay swimming pools, gay hotels, gay restaurants, um, gay clubs, 15, 20 gay clubs in this very small area, um, everything. In fact, um, you know, it was bigger and more popular than Fire Island, which was too hard to get to, or the same thing with P-Town, which wasn't quite as big yet. Rehoboth wasn't there. Right. right? Asbury no. wasn't there. It well, was well, as you're it saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, my question become how, how large was that then and now compared to Philadelphia? Um, I don't, I don't think you could compare that, like the physical size is small, right? right? right. And, but, but the, I mean, everybody who came down here was from Philly or New York or DC. Wow. I mean, everybody just converged in Atlantic City. And Sandy, you're, and we're telling me just a little bit of a story before we went on about your experience there. Everybody has a story. Everybody of a certain age has a story mm -hmm. about New York Avenue. Well, and if, if, I, if I remember if, right, Studio Six actually opened kind of late in the cycle. I don't remember it being there when I moved in 83 and there was like a big splash around its opening. You know? Well, there was a studio, I think one and the studio three, and then there was, um, you know, there ah. were a few other places that-, oh, so that This is like a multiple iteration. <laughs> yeah, and, and then I believe, I believe studio six moved also. It was on Snake Alley and then it eventually moved to Mount Vernon. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was part of the Grand Central Hotel that, that was on the back of it of that huge hotel mm -hmm. that took up so much of New York Avenue on the backside of Snake Alley. So none um, of this made it into the Louis Mal film. I wonder why. I don't know. <laughs> you know, one of the really one of the things I like to say, you know, what I really love about what I do, and I do love what I do. I mean, as I always say, who gets this job? You know, I get to um, you know, bring these stories out. Um that people don't get to hear that are so important. And to me, restorative history, the history of marginalized voices, isn't extra history, it is the history. And the right, you know, right, and the yeah. first time I heard you speak, I was just like, this is like history. I, I, there was so much I didn't know, so yeah. much I didn't know. So I knew that Sandy would relate because even though we're the same age, um, I didn't come out until I was in my 30s. So my memory of Atlantic City is going down as a family, running a beach house, a house, a week, you know, a block or so away from the beach. Seven kids in my family we were each allowed to bring a friend. So it was just huge house, food, cooking, going back and forth to the beach all day. And that's my memory of Atlantic City. Um, and how much I missed. Well, that, you know, that area of, of Atlantic City is so rich in history. Kentucky Avenue just before the, the, the sort of the gay community was at its apex was the cent center of the African-American community, Atlantic City. It had the best jazz clubs on the East Coast. Every famous musician came and played there. And it, it, they had a beach um, at Indiana Avenue called Chicken Bone Beach, where the most which was the only beach that African-Americans were allowed on, I mean, unofficially. Right. Um, during segregation, unofficial segregation in the city. And they would have famous jazz. We have pictures of Martin Luther King on the beach, of every famous jazz musician playing there. And there's still a historical foundation and jazz society called Chicken Bone Beach Historical oh. Foundation that exists in the city. So this area is rich with restorative potential in its giving us this information about the real history of the city. And the and and, you know, it is. It is such an honor, really, I truly mean this, to be able to tell these stories. One of my 
uh, favorite ones is the one you mentioned about uh, show us your shoes, the show us your shoes parade. Yeah. And it's a great example of what I call, you know, straight washing history. Okay. Um, and I say this because the way that the parade, this parade is now known as like the iconic property of the Miss America pageant. And uh, if you look on their website. There was even an official press release from uh, them about a oh, oh. generation of it. It is the thing they're most proud of. It is the highlight of the parade, you know, the pageant, excuse me, weekend and the pageant event in total, the whole week of it. And they will talk about it as a family friendly event where people decorate their shoes in whimsical representations I, of sorry, their state. They, they, they've co-opted it then. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you were ever there for the beginning of Show Us Your Shoes, Sandy, you know what I'm talking about because the way it actually started, because they'll tell you, oh, people were saying, show us your shoes. So then it became a tradition, but what really happened was that there were two boarding houses on either side of New York Avenue and the boardwalk. Um, one was the Frailinger, and I can't, the, the name of the second one is, is uh, skipping right now, but it's where Ripley's Believe It or Not that is now on the corner. And it, everybody who lived in that boarding house was either a drag queen or a, one of the queer sort of denizens who lived in yep. that area. And they would go on the balconies and as the Miss America parade, and they used to sit in the back of convertibles, remember, right. all, all dressed up in their evening gowns with their white yes. gloves on all right. proper. And they would lean out of these balconies and they would read the hell out of them. They would be like, <laughs> they'd go like, oh baby, show us your shoes. Cause they'd see, they'd have socks on. They weren't wearing shoes because their shoes were in the, you know, their feet were in the car. Right. Yeah. And they would harass them because they could see down from the balconies and tease them and taunt them <laughs> and try, try to get a reaction. They even had t-shirts made. I don't know if you remember the standing and signs. And we had watches that said, show us your shoes. Every kind of paraphernalia you can imagine. Well, one day they were told, don't react. When you pass New York Avenue, you'll get by them. Don't react. <laughs> one day, one of the contestants, she picked yep. her foot up and showed them her socks and everyone went, insane <laughs> and, and after that it didn't stop and what happened was the miss america organization took the name show us your shoes and trademarked it oh and then rewrote the history of it and said oh yeah now you know sort of a camp beat and we'll join them then the, the contestants started decorating their shoes in what can be described as nothing else but camp <laughs> you know, a camp configuration of who they are and parade down the boardwalk. I mean, it, it, doesn't get, it doesn't get gayer than that, does it? Mm -hmm. It really doesn't. No, but given what you've said about the history of the event, I find it amusing that if you go onto the Miss America organization homepage mm -hmm. right now, what you see is the bottom half of a woman in an evening gown with high top sneakers on. That's right. <laughs> yep. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, again, straight wash story. You mm -hmm. will find that story nowhere but in my book. And I wow. looked everywhere. I have a number of different citations from different newspapers, mm -hmm. you know, journals, even the book that was recently written about Miss America's 100 years by Margaret Mifflin, great historian, just repeats the story from the website. Uh -huh. you know, and that was another question. So you have... Uh... <laughs> What came first? Was it the history? What kind of led up to the book? Um, how did you, and this was, so you wrote two books during the pandemic, right? You just had some time on your hand. <laughs> yeah, <it was> basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think I talked to you at some point during the pandemic and you were going to London in the middle of the pandemic to promote, was it this book or the other yeah, book? Yeah, the, a different one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what led to the book? Was it the history that you were holding and it kind of came out, but how did that come about? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, it really speaks to what anthropologists do and what our method is. So I love talking about this because um, it's confusing to people. Um, what anthropologists do is we embed ourselves in a particular site that we think might be interesting. And our research question evolves out of our experiences there. So it's different than going in like with a thesis and going, I'm studying this. We, we really don't do that initially. So this is very much how it happened to me. I'm an anthropologist. My specialty is embodiment. So mostly phenomenology, which is a fancy word for saying 
how people experience the world inside a particular body. Um, so for example, I'm five feet tall, you know, so my experience and, you know, I'm a white girl. So my experience in my body is different when I walk around than someone who might be a six foot seven black man. I see it all the time when I ride on an airplane and wonder how people's legs fit, in, you know, in the seats. The answer when is I'm so I figure that, but so we, I mean, that's on a very simple level, but of course there are much more complex sociological and psychological levels for understanding um, this experience. For example, experience of being in a disabled body, right? So I went to, my friend is a producer and she happened to be producing some drag pageants. And she asked me if I wanted to come just volunteer for a fundraiser. And I said, sure. And I, when I immediately, when I entered it, I wasn't really a, a big fan of, um, certainly a fan of drag, but not like a huge fan of knowing about it. I went to this event and realized that there was something very, very interesting there. And when I realized, when I saw Mr. America and thought, oh my gosh, why hasn't anybody written about the synergistic evolution between these two pageants? It is such a, a way of telling the history of Atlantic City, especially of its queer community. So it sort of evolved that way. Um, I didn't start out to try to ask a history question, although I do um, like to tell restorative history. Um, and but I did, um, you know, the, the question did hit me over the head. Let's put it that way by itself. Wow. Um, and there was something, the first show that I caught you on, there was something about bow ties. And I thought about Sandy about the color of the bow tie, the color of the hanky or something. Yeah, it's actually, I mean, you know, there are in gay male culture, uh, we don't have it in gay female culture, but gay male culture has it started in the 1950s, I believe, something called the hanky code, which was yep. a way to, to indicate to others, gay men, that you were one family, as we say today, and two, the kind of family you were. And this usually had to do with your identity and uh, sexual proclivities. Um, and so the different colored or patterned hankies were worn in your back pocket. And that was the case in um, the 1950s. It was things like bow ties and socks and it wasn't as you know codified in hankies i think until the late 1970s so that was um that was something that happened in atlantic city which by the way has always been a town that has had sex tourism and the boardwalk was a famous place where you could pick up young men um in atlantic city around new york avenue that was has been that way since the 1940s and so this, these sort of codes using clothing to indicate who you were and what you did wow. um, were part of the culture, absolutely. And still are in some ways, although they've evolved and changed. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, I'm, Sandy. One of the things I'm picking up about Atlantic City in general, not just from your book, but from other things I've read about in my you know, own experience there is that, you know, usually beach resorts are different from cities. Atlantic City is unusual in that it is actually a city that sits, that is also a beach resort. You know, a lot of the things you are describing are things that pe people associate with urban culture rather than with beach communities. And you mentioned that, you know, look that people give you. And I know that there are some people who I think still regard the place as the South Bronx by the sea. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is a city. That's, that's something people don't understand and it's honestly it's why i love living there you know i I'm with its own airport with its own yeah, airport by I, the I way mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a city girl i get to have all of the diversity all of the attitudes to some extent but also the kinds of life you know nightlife and things like that that you have in a city but we happen to be on the beach i mean one of the places i can think of that's like it in that way is san juan you know it's also yep. a city at the beach but yeah, we're not a typical, you know, it's not Long Beach Island. There is no right. question. It, you've, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore if you come down from Long Beach well, Island yeah. to go to Atlantic City. Of the community, <laughs> New Jersey, Asbury Park is the only one that comes close, and even it's a yeah. fair nation. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Asbury is much more suburban um, yeah. than it is urban, um, and also newer, of course, than, you know, that's just the last yeah. 15, 20 years that Asbury's been... 
uh, developed as or successful again as a resort town and having a thriving gay community. Yes. You know, um, and I go ahead. I, I just have to say that this is totally news to me, totally. Because again, we went down as a family, got a beach house, went to the shore, my very square, straight parents. Um, I had no idea, like as a little kid, that any of this was going on. I think the last time I went, I hadn't been for a while, just because, you know, I was a teenager, didn't want to go. But I think the last time I went, I might have been like 15 or 16, and my dad had to drag me along. But um, but as a kid, it was just Atlantic City to the beach. Um, like we did Coney Island once in a while, Wildwood, but Atlantic City was where we went. And all I remember seeing was families and kids. That's all I remember seeing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of the few places in the, you know, sort of Northeast beach resorts where you, where uh, people of color come. And right. one, besides Wildwood, nor, what part of Wildwood, just part. And that's because these people are part of the demographic here, you know? So right. that, that you wouldn't maybe have noticed as a kid, right. but as an adult, you would, uh, you right. know, because it's not, it's not common to see black faces on, in beach resorts, right. Um, yeah, right. you know? And, and it's one of the great things about Atlantic City um, is, is that, again, the diversity which we have here. And also I wanna say, just remember, as much as a kid, you know, you don't see these things. Atlantic right. City has always been a place that has survived by either bending or breaking the rules, uh, whether it would be prohibition, you know, and bootlegged whiskey. You know, you watch Boardwalk Empire. This is not a small, you see the movie Atlantic City or casinos or whatever the next scheme is to capitalize on making money off of tourists, you know, wow. so... And the city would do anything to make that money off of, I mean, the people who run the city, right. including, including Nucky Johnson saying, he literally said, hey, it wouldn't be here if the tourists didn't want it when he opened a legal casino. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> or, or, when, or when he sold bootleg whiskey, hey, they just, just giving the, you know, our customers what they want. Right, right, and, and right. That, that is why they came to Atlantic City. And they came for sex also. Wow. You know? And that was true through really the 19, the, the demise of New York Avenue. I mean, mm. it, it was sort of like the rent boy capital of the East Coast. And, wow. and um, you know, it was shamelessly, it was. Wow, wow. Yeah. So, um, so how long did it, so did you write the book during like a couple of months of there? Did it just kind of come and you just kind of sat down and just started to go? Or was it kind of literally pieces that have been there and you just kind of, Put them together. I mean, not not that it was that simple to write a book, but no, it's an, it's another great question because it also speaks again to what anthropologists do, which is we don't just embed ourselves physically. So I say we're embedded and embodied, right, in our in our research site, but we also do it for a long time. We live right. it. We live it. Okay. You know, and and so that's how we get our experiences and our questions. So the research itself um, occurred over about a ten year period of okay. me um, embedding myself in this subculture, you could say. And then the writing of it is actually a small part that took about, I guess, six months of figuring out what, you know, what had, uh, what I wanted to say based on the stories that were emerging and, and know too that um, my job as an anthropologist isn't to tell you or have you hear my voice and my read on everything, mm, okay. but to let the voices of the culture and the people that live in it tell their story. So I always hope that those voices are amplified and that's what you hear when you read my work. Right, you wow. You hear them, you hear the people speaking. And it's one reason why ethnography has so much quotation in it compared to other kinds of writing, meaning quotes from other people. Mm -hmm. Well, now, you know, these days, as, in, as you might have picked up by some of our regular segment focuses, um, you know, transgender people are sort of like, I'm tempted to say the flavor of the month in terms of the attention we're giving the subject. Um, but, you know, transgender, uh, you know, uh, gender identity and gender performance, like being a drag queen, are related, but not the same thing. And I'm wondering, you know, how they cross, something that brought this up is on the Missed America homepage this year is a statement from the organization 
stating that those assigned male at birth will be allowed to compete this year. Female at birth. Be excuse. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. they, those assigned female at birth will be allowed to compete this year. And they want to emphasize that this, they want to support the entire LGBTQIA community. Um, and that seems to be, you know, sort of an interesting flip on the whole idea because this began with drag queens who may not necessarily have considered themselves female. Yeah, I mean, this might be, it, it may be one of the most important issues to me personally. And it's something mm -hmm. that, um, you know, always hope um, that I, I write what I write. Yep. I try to write what I write so that in a language that the people that I'm studying can understand, even though it is intrinsically academic, I try not to use jargon. Um, and I also always hope that my writing will do nothing but serve the community that I'm studying. And one of the things that was controversial about the Miss America, Missed America pageant was that it did not allow transgender contestants um, and, and by the way, in its inception, it did. But when it became a larger, more professional pageant and they created a charter and they trademarked the uh, pageant, mm -hmm. it excluded transgender contestants be, be, for the simple reason, it, it, not necessarily a reason of discrimination, at least in the, you know, a conscious discrimination, was that they wanted it to be traditional drag. And it really has to do with your definition of drag. If you consider drag to be men dressing as women or women presenting and dressing as men for the yes. purpose of performance, then it's obvious why that exclusion would happen. The truth is that the definition of drag is not so neat and no, nor is it, you know, does it cease to evolve right? It is something that is constantly in flux and changes like everything else in its meaning and in its use with culture. And um, in the beginning, there were two or three people who were transgender contestants. One of the first winners, Tanae Long, shout out to Tanae. Um, she was one of the first Miss America winners. Wow. Um, and so, but there has been, um, you know, I, you can also understand why some of them were, um, the traditionalists about drag mm -hmm. who are drag queens themselves feel this way. You know, they mm -hmm. feel that the illusion is the work, you know, and the performance. But I, so, but now just this year after some uh, controversy and some advocacy and some mm -hmm. talk, talking and healing in the community, they are accepting transgender contestants. And I consider this one of the best rewritten endings to my book yep. that I could have ever wished for, honestly. Um, and there's more of these great endings to come, I hope. But I want um, just to talk a little bit for the viewers about the difference between drag, cross-dressing, and being transgender. Um, because uh, being a female impersonator, because these are four different things. Yes. And, and confusing them does a disservice to both transgender individuals as well as to drag performers, you know. Um, so a female impersonator is someone who tries to look like usually a celebrity and actually, so that you would think they could pass for that a female. They may or may not be also a drag performer. Um, a cross-dresser, of course, is probably a straight man um, who dresses as a woman as a fetish. There's some sort of titillation associated with it, um, with doing that, right? It doesn't have anything to do with being queer or performing in public. Often it's done in fact, and only in private. The famous um, scene in Woody Allen's movie, everything you wanted to know about, is about sex, but we're afraid to ask that answer the question, are transvestites homosexuals? Exactly, that's, exactly. That's, yes. Exactly. And then of course we have drag, queen, drag queens and kings, but I'll talk about queens right now, um, who are dressing as women for the purpose of performance, which is 99% of the time an exaggeration and not meant to be mistaken for an actual woman at all. And of course, this is where we get into the element of camp and how mm -hmm. camp, camp is so central to gay sensibility. And is, it is, again, often straight co-opted as something just generally kitschy, but that's wrong in my it, opinion. It's more than kitsch. Camp is gay. You mm -hmm. can't do camp without doing gay. Mm -hmm. um, and there's that. And then of course, 
transgender individuals are people who may have been born and identified or designated as male in this case of a trans woman, but identify as female. This is not a performance, right? This is who they are. Usually um, it, 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 at the risk of sounding insulting, but basically the plumbing and the operating system don't match. Correct. I mean, that's a, a, a simple way of saying it, right? The right. body does not match what's inside. And so they're just wanting to be recognized for who they are, which are females. Now, some transgender women may also do drag. And when they dress for drag, they don't look like their normal transgender female selves. <laughs> they look like drag queens, you know, they look over the top. They look like an exaggeration. So this is the argument for allowing trans women in drag queens pageants or drag queen performances because they still have to perform. I can't, I'm a woman and I can't do drag. You know what I mean? I would have to learn. <laughs> yep, yep. And of course there are bio queens who are cis women who do like myself who become drag queens. So it's a much more complex and interesting and frankly rich and accepting sphere then people understand it to be. And it's getting more and more so, and it's something I'm very, very uh, happy to see personally. I've never seen a Miss America pageant. I you think I'm this year. This year's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> pardon me. So I, I have seen a, um, you say Mr. American? No, Mr. America. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. All right. And then I, as, as you were talking about this, I remember back in January on RuPaul's Drag Race, Drag Race, Got Milk, Got Nick, Got, got Nick, Nick, yes, was the first transgender man to compete on, you know, RuPaul's show. And we talked about that. And I think the other contestants did not know that he was a trans man. Oh, no, they did. They oh, did. they did. Right. Yeah. I mean, but so, right. So, but did they find that? Because I heard it on the news, which you need, you know, things get all jumbled up. Did they know before? I guess the end of the show, they knew beforehand. Oh, they knew. I think they knew beforehand. Um, the first episode, they, she, you know, they were discussing it, and Gottmik was talking about some of the stresses that he had or trepidations and sort of, you know, some of the triggers that were coming up um, doing female drag, right? I mean, impersonating a woman being a trans man and, and right. kinds of interesting conflicts. And it was quite interesting to listen to him speak about it, you know, but RuPaul has been accused of transphobia I, uh, uh, fairly or not, I'd like to say, I, went, I don't want to get into that debate, but, um, and Rue has had trans female contestants on before, just a few in reaction to that. And I think this was just another step that Rue was taking to try to, you know, ameliorate again and mend some of those um, hurt feelings and potentially some of those missteps that, you know, she made. Wow, wow. Something else that I know you, you know, I wanted to, that we wanted to touch on was your work advocating for, you know, queer youth uh, in South Jersey and Atlantic City in particular. Um, you know, how, did this grow out of your research interest or? You know, it did. I, I, you know, when I first started working in drag, I noticed that a lot of the kids and many of them are very young that that work in drag, they're often sort of awkward, like I rack of a better term, I'll use a term from my generation, like sort of dorky, you know, yeah. they don't quite fit into like sort of the gay male, very stringent ideas about presentation and being good looking or being, you know, fit. And, and drag was a way for them to find acceptance in the gay community. It's like they had to come out twice, first as gay and then as dragon. And they, they, they gained some status and some, you know, admiration because of their ability to be drag queens who are very much admired by most of the gay community. Um, but I also knew that many of them ended up that way because they had been thrown out of their homes or they had been um, abused in sex trafficking or 
other things that um, LGBTQ youth are subject to. And in Atlantic City, we have some of the highest rates of sex trafficking and some of the highest rates of homeless LGBTQ youth for many reasons. One of the reasons they get dropped off here at our bus station, um, we're the kind of place that jails drop people off at, at our mm -hmm. bus station. So it it's, you know, and you can sort of hang out here and get lost. And this was very disturbing to me. I'm a mother myself. Um, and I know that LGBTQ youth um, have very much higher rates of things like depression, alcoholism, drug abuse, all kinds of risky behaviors so they can contract HIV and other you know, sexually transmitted diseases at higher rates. Um, and that 75% of the homeless youth in this city are LGBTQ, yet we do not have a single bed or you know, for a youth under the age of 18 in this city and only one wow. facility, the Covenant House, which is a religious affiliated organization. So many gay kids don't go there um, mm -hmm. or feel comfortable there. And they don't really have facilities to separate trans kids or kids with sexual identity issues. Mm. They don't really have those resources. So basically we have no beds for anybody and very few services. And it really spurred me to start the LGBTQ plus Youth Safe Space AC, which is the institute is housed in uh, Stockton University. And one of the unique things about it is it, it has all the great things like the attic does, your wonderful facilities. Hey, hi to Jay um, in Philadelphia, which is an emergent center for where they have beds if they need them. They can just come and be themselves a social organization. So they have all this sort of way to funnel different kinds of services to the youth. But also we wanna couple that in the university with research so that we can learn best practice for things like, you know, foster care, which doesn't exist in New Jersey, a special foster care for LGBTQ youth, even though hmm. we've had special facilities and certifications for disabled children since the 1960s. Um, and they have the highest rate of failure in, in um, also in those kinds of temporary homes as well, because they get beaten up by the other kids and the parents don't understand or they're religious, mm. you know. So this is what spurred me to do this unique um, institute. And we're always looking for support and to further develop the institute as we move along. Wow. Um, on, so when you went there, I immediately thought of the Trevor Project. Are there hotlines in the area that you guys refer people to for the LGP, LGBTQ youth? Well, the, the Institute, frankly, is like many things in the university, competing with lots of other kinds of um, interests and institutes and in trying to get support and funding um, from the local community and from our university itself. So we've just actually been incorporated la right before COVID. And then okay. COVID happened, which sort of put a kibosh on any sort of growth for the Institute. So we're picking up again. Another sort of a challenge for a small community like Atlantic City is we don't have a lot of donors like a big city. We have a few people who give to everything mm -hmm. and not a lot of resources. So anybody out there that's got as their pet project um, that they would like to support a youth institute and has the resources that they would like to donate to do that or knows of anything, always appreciate that <laughs> information, but we're looking to do the kinds of, those kinds of things is the answer. But right now we're really not doing okay. what, what, we, what we're wanting, we're charged to do, but we're looking to grow our abilities to do that. And and I, I heard you say that, you know, it, everything came to a screeching halt with COVID. And that's unfortunate because I'm thinking that's when probably the the need increased even more. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. wow. Yeah. In, in the interim, we're going to give the information out for Trevor Project. We actually talked to them two years ago. We did an interview with them um, who deals who deal with youth. Wonderful organization. Yes. And there are, as a similar organization for trans youth, um, and again, the name is escaping my mind, but I bet we could throw it up there, a little, um, you know, a little address for website for them as well. When this Absolutely, ends. absolutely. Put, um, it on, put it on our website. Yeah. And um, yes, it, it is a shame. And just like so many other inequalities were amplified and, you know, brought to people's attention during the pandemic, um, the plight of LGBT 
Q Plus Youth has as well. And by the way, a little political statement I'd like to make, a little advocacy right now, um, is that they're trying to get rid of our harm reduction programs in New Jersey, meaning that's needle exchange programs. Um, and I want to say that so and in favor of supporting more youth programming, and I want to tell those people this, so many of the people that benefit from the needle exchange and are prevented from getting HIV, preventing from getting, hopefully not then, other illnesses, including hepatitis, um, are these LGBTQ and other homeless youth. So the needle exchange program benefits those individuals more than anybody else in our city and in others. And so I, um, you know, ask all of you to call your congressman in Atlantic City, excuse me, in, in New Jersey, and demand that they do not stop these harm reduction programs that have kept HIV and other illnesses from spreading in our community and saved so many lives, by the way. The right. And, 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 and where can folks go to do that? Um, I know that if they just called their senators or their local representatives in New Jersey and just left a message at their offices um, that, and tell them, we want the harm reduction, the needle exchange programs to stay. These make our communities healthier and safer. Right, exactly, exactly. Lori, it has been a blast. It has been a blast. Um, I told Sandy that we would have a ball. Um, so where can our listeners find you? Well, I have a personal webpage, which is professorlauriagreen.com, where you can see what I'm working on and some of my advocacy and writing projects. Um, I also teach at Stockton University at the Atlantic City campus. I'm here all the time. Um, and you can always drop me a line there if you'd like to get in touch with me there. Yeah, and for any any of the resources that she gave, I'm sure that they can reach out to you to get more information in case they can't find something. I do want, before we wind up, I want to give the information for the Trevor Project. You can text START, S-T-A-R-T, 678-8678. Their number is 866-488-7386, and we'll have that on our Facebook pages as usual. Sandy, it looks like we are winding down. So, so I do have two questions for you, Lori. What are your pronouns? We kind of missed that at the top. We just blew my, right past my that. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Okay. Although and, I, I like to say I'll answer to anybody that invites me for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a quick gas cue. Gas cue is our gay answers to street questions. And we like when we have a guest for a guest to share with us what has been the at the top of the list question that you have asked. And so we're doing this for education purposes. Sometimes, you know, this, it's a little bit, you know, it's not, to, it's not, it's not to say we're not gonna giggle a little bit on the side, but what has been kind of, I guess, the question that you've been asked? Yeah, I think my favorite, I mean, there's so many, we were laughing about some of them at the beginning of the show. <laughs> and I often get them at interviews. And I do wanna say, there is no, I agree, like if someone asks me something and they're really interested, I don't care if it came out wrong. I don't care if they use the wrong words. I don't care how a you know, how non, you know, bad politics it is. Right, right. Um, I love to answer if it's sincere, you know, and I'm always happy to answer. So keep asking your questions, straight people. But my, <laughs> my, probably the question that I think is the funniest that I hear the most is, which one of you is the man? <laughs> I, think that, I love that question. I think men and women get that question. So yes. how's that work? Which yeah. one of you is the man? I love that question. Well, and so, and it makes you want to go, I don't know, can you tell me in your life, in your intimate life, how does that work? <laughs> what do you guys do? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty it's funny. Who's the I, wait, wait. My, I had this something so funny happen the other day. Um, somebody was talking about Queer Eye for the straight guy. And I said, you know, a straight person had to make that show. And I said, and they said, why? And I, I said, either that or a gay guy. It had to be a guy. And, I, and they said, why? And I said, well, I, I think the last thing women care about is how their men decorate their apartment and dress. What they should have is a lesbian show like that teaches a straight guy actually how to satisfy his wife. That's what they should have. Because <laughs> that, I think, is probably the better show. Yes. The more desired show. But anyway, I think that that's hysterical also, that, you know, the idea is that all gay men have great fashion. 
Yes. And that the other one should get their gay cards taken away. Absolutely. <laughs> that's a subject for another episode. <laughs> Folks, that's all we have tonight. You can find our podcast. We are everywhere. iTunes, Podomatic, Google Play Store, TuneIn, Spotify. Sandy, can you take us home? Sure. You are listening to Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and on the web at gtownradio.com. Or you've been listening to us on Saturday afternoons at 2 on WXVU 89.1 FM Villanova's campus radio station. This has been Cue the Mic. See you next week.